0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study.
1: We uh, are in Parsha Naso this week. We are uh, in the second triennial um, portion of Naso. Um, and we, so we, we've been using this word, this word for counting. Um, which actually means to lift up Su so et rosh, Israel, lift up the head of every person of Israel. This week, we are told Naso to um, lift them up by counting the clans of the Levites who will be doing porterage um, of the Mishkan. So they will actually be carrying the Mishkan, the tabernacle. Um, and so it's about, so the war, so they are lifted up by being counted and appointed to this role. And they are also then going to be actually lifting up right? They're going to be actually lifting and putting on their shoulders, um, all of the stuff that makes up the Mishkan, um, and the, the tabernacle. So it's a, um, it's a Parsha about lifting up and we're going to look at a particular use of that word this morning. Um, we'll go to the text, um, and I'm going to race through, uh, the beginning of the Parsha and you'll see why. (laughs) Um, Here's where our triennial reading starts, Um, and it is with Isha Sota. So this is the Sota. This is the the woman who was accused of adultery, the woman who is accused of having uh, broken faith with him, as as it's translated. Um, And so this is the ritual um, and the instruction for the ritual that uh, is to be done if um, a man... Has a fit of jealousy come over him, and he is wrought up about the wife who has defiled herself. Um, so this really is about the male here. This is, and and I'm I'm going to race through it because I don't really want to. I don't have the kliach to spend a lot of time on it today. But um, but but essentially, this is a ritual that was to deal with the man and his experience of kina, of the right to anger. And jealousy, because he is in a monogamous relationship, meaning she has to be monogamous. He can have another wife. She, she has to be monogamous. Um, and anyone who's in a monogamous relationship has the right to kin'ah. This is what God feels when Israel worships other gods or is idolatrous in any way. God experiences kin'ah. And that's why, you know, it's, I am a jealous God, but that is, that is an English rendering that doesn't really get at the meaning of Kin'a. We, some, one is entitled to Kin'a when one is in an exclusive relationship and the other partner steps out, you are entitled to their exclusive loyalty and they break that loyalty. You are entitled to Kin'a. So that's, what's going on here. The the husband is experiencing Kin'a about regarding his wife and her behavior In many cultures, that was enough for him to kill her. That was enough. If he was convinced she had stepped out of the exclusivity of the relationship, he could kill her. If you think about India, think about places where women are burned um, still to protect the honor of the family, this was very common um, in the ancient world. So many scholars believe this whole business is about giving him Something to do that exonerates her so that he doesn't kill her. <laughs> so, um, because if you look at what it is, he shall bring his wife to the priest, right? And he's gonna bring an offering. The priest will bring her forward to stand leafne adonai before you He's gonna take um uh sacral water in an earthen vessel and Take some of the dirt from the floor of the tabernacle and put it in the water. Um, he bears her head. Remember, married women would have had their heads covered. Um, place her hands in the meal offering, which is a meal offering of kinah. And in the priest's hand shall be the water of bitterness that induces the spell. So this is Mehamarim, the bitter waters. The priest will say to her, if no man has lain with you, if you've not gone astray in defilement while married to your husband, be immune to harm from this water of bitterness that induces the spell. But if you have gone astray while married to your husband and have defiled yourself, if a man other than your husband has had carnal relations with you, then may God make you a curse and an imprecation among your people and yet if will cause your thigh to sag and your belly to distend. May this water that induces the spell enter your body, causing the belly to distend and the thigh to sag. And the woman answers, Amen, Amen. So the woman agrees to um, the fact that, that they have activated the water. Um, all right. So, so in other words, she's, all she's doing is drinking water with tabernacle dirt in it. That's what's happening here. You have to believe that it's efficacious to believe this is a way to deal with something like this. But clearly, what this does is provides a way for, for the priest to essentially say to the husband, Do you not believe in Yodhei Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh And Yodhei power? Do you not believe in right, the power of the priesthood to invoke God's blessing or curse? Right? So the man would then have to say, Well, I don't believe it, so I'm gonna take her home and do what I want. So this really is a way to challenge the man to accept the authority of God and the priests. She's drinking tabernacle dirt floor water. We can assume nothing happened to any woman ever from drinking tabernacle dirt water. Um, But what it does is it gives a way for the man's uh, anger and jealousy to be addressed and dealt with. uh, And nothing then happens to the woman. So that that's the beginning of our parsha is Isha Sota, is this ritual of the, the Sota. And um, Barry already has something to say. Go ahead, Barry. Please. Uh, I, I wanted,
2: to wanted to say that uh, the Bedouins, Bedouins this, this day, day, some of them, some others, um, have, this, have ritual this ritual of, of uh, uh, women, women who are accused of adultery leaking night. knife. And knife. Uh, that is, that is, that's been, that's put been put in, in fire, fire. And, and if and, and then, then the tongue, the tongue is tongue, the tongue is burned and sheik we'll 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 who examines, examines the, tongue the tongue and and tells, tells if
1: it, it's true, true or not. Yeah, know, yeah. so some he's saying some of the Bedouin today. So Bed- Bedouin are from the same area that we're from. Many of that we look to many of their customs, you know, and ways of living because that's the way our semi-nomadic, you know, pastoralist ancestors would have lived. So he's lifting up a, a parallel in Bedouin culture um, where, if a woman is accused of adultery, a knife is placed in a uh, fire and then it's placed on what her tongue vary.
2: Yes. Yes.
1: Then the knife is placed, the hot knife is placed on her tongue, and then whoever's in charge looks examines her tongue to decide whether or not, given the wound, whether whether the accusation is true or not.
2: Now, the The interesting interesting fact is that 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 custom custom died out out until until the peace treaty treaty with Egypt, Egypt. and And now Bedouins Bedouins can travel to the the Sinai Desert. To, to actually, actually have that ritual, ritual. otherwise it's otherwise, forbidden by it. law, law harming right. people.
1: Right. So, um, so because Israel, of course, doesn't want <laughs> doesn't want that <laughs> going on, right? So it's it's illegal. Uh, but so now um, Barry's saying now that they can travel freely to Egypt and be in the Sinai desert, they can they can do other things that they're not allowed to do in Israel. This being one of them. So. So preserved in Bedouin culture is what do you do when a man is convinced or is just so worked up about it? What, what do you do? Um, and so there, there are rituals in many cultures that deal with this. This is, this is the, ours. This is the remnant from, uh, from Torah, um, but really designed, m- most scholars believe, to exonerate the woman. Because unlike the tongue and hot knife, in this case, the woman is not harmed. Um, in any way, which is, which to me feels a little different, right? Like if a man accuses you and you haven't done anything and you still have to burn your tongue, like it's like, what, but with this, she's drinking water that's got some sand in it. (laughs) It's like, right. She's not hurt by the, by the ritual, which is a little bit different to me. All right. Um, So, so that's the first part. The next part we have is the Nazir. Uh, We have um, the Nazir who takes a vow who makes a vow um, to become super set aside for God. So super holy. Um, and uh it is it is a vow that must be fulfilled, like all Nidarim, like all vows. Um, but when the Nazir takes this vow, it is for a certain period of time, and they don't drink any alcohol, no wine or any kind of you know alcohol. Um, they, and they give their hair, uh, they grow their hair, um, and for the whole time that they are consecrated. Right. Um, and so that's one of the ways, you know, maybe possibly to, in the ancient world to identify somebody who was, um, a Nazir, he is not allowed to come into contact uh, with any kind of corpse impurity. So we know corpses communicate the highest level of tum'ah, of impurity. He's not allowed to um, to become impure even if a member of his family dies, an immediate family. Uh, and usually, of course, the, the responsibility to bury those people falls on the immediate family. He, he would be implicated in the mitzvah, the commandment to bury, but he's not allowed to if he's made this vow of being a Nazir. Um, and when he's done, right. And this is, this is an interesting part is, um, is that a sin offering is made for a Nazir. So the rabbis look at this and say, well, what did he do? If he, if he made a vow and he kept the vow, why does he have to make a sin offering? Um, and, um, and one of the answers is because the, is because the tradition was very, very hesitant and very conflicted about this Practice of taking on the vows of becoming a nazir. Um, the most famous nazir. Who's who's going to win the prize? Who's the famous nazir that you know? The
2: Sam- uh, Sam- 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 yes. Jesus.
1: Yes. Jesus. 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 <laughs> uh, Samson. Exactly right. Samson was a nazir, um, and hence, you know, we 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 talk about his hair. Right, that that it wasn't just hair, people. Like that, this was his the sign that he was a Nazir, so his hair was consecrated, and needed when it was cut off to be offered. It needed to go to the tabernacle. It needed to go to the Mishkan or the temple um, and be offered. So, because it was consecrated hair, and so so the fact that his hair gets cut is not a small detail, um, because that was consecrated hair that that she didn't have a right to to take. Okay, so this is this is the Nazir. All right, so we're going to spend most of our time this morning not here. We're going to spend our time here, and Bert's going to be so happy. Bert's going to be very happy, because why? Here we are at the commandment by Deber Adonai al-Musha Limor. God speaks to Moshe, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons. Here is how you shall bless the people of Israel you will say to them yivarechecha adonai beishma i'm not going to translate it ya'er yet ya'er adonai panav elecha vayechunecha yisa adonai panav elecha vayeasem lecha shalom we all are very familiar with this um uh, blessing the samuwich mi albene israel ani avarchem so it's interesting that this this concept of verse 27 sometimes gets left off a little bit <laughs> from, from the concept of blessing. And that is, you will place my name on them. This yod right? vav is repeated three times in each of the lines of the priestly benediction. You will place my name on them and I will bless them. It is not the priests blessing the people. God is blessing the people. The priests are the conduit for that blessing. And if we're going to get into the conversation about why do you need priests to communicate God's blessing, just think about blessing your children. You know, why do you need parents to bless children? Why do you need the rabbi to bless the bar mitzvah? Like right, so it's not it's not that that you can't that God's blessing is inaccessible without the blesser, but the blesser um, intensifies the, the experience of accessing the divine blessing. That's really how Judaism understands the role of the person doing the blessing. In this case, the priests, um, who are commanded to bless the people, um, with these words. Uh, but it is God who, who is the, um, who is the source of blessing. It is God. It is God who blesses. It it is the priests who, um, who are the, the fountain, if you will, turning on the spigot. All right. So let's look at the bracha itself. Notice in the first, and even if you don't read Hebrew, you don't, you don't have to know Hebrew to follow what I'm going to say right now. So one, two, three words in the first line. Second line, one, two, three, four, five words. The last line, the third line, seven words. So the prime numbers three, five, seven. These coming in in succession ha- has meaning in the ancient world. Numbers have meaning. And um, then the, um, the number of letters goes 15, 20, 25. So five five letters each additional line you there are five letters added. Um, there is a verb, then the name Yudhe Vavhe and another verb. That's the pattern. Even though we're adding words, verb, yud vav vavhe, verb. Yisa verb, yudhe vavhe. Vayasem l'chaf shalom. So, verb, right? So, verb he he, verb. That is the pattern um, of the priestly blessing. So, what are these verbs? All right. Well, again, even if you don't know Hebrew, whatever you see bet resh chaf, we are dealing with the idea of blessing. Bet resh chaf, um, you know it from barachu from Baruch, right, Atah Adonai, the beginning of our blessing formula, um, uh, comes from berech, knee. So originally, right, your knee. So why, why the knee? What does that have to do with blessing? Well, if you think about, you know, the posture, particularly in the ancient world of going to the knees, putting the forehead to the ground, that was how one showed deference. That is how one demonstrated respect and the acknowledging of, to whomever you're bowing, that their status is higher than yours. So this becomes then the concept of um, of blessing. So berech, so bet resh chaf. Those consonants together always are going to mean something about blessing. So this is the future tense, and but we usually in English put the word may in there because it's it's a request. Um, it's because that's what blessing is. You're asking for God's Blessing. Um, so, so we would say in English, "May God bless you." Because in Hebrew, the the verb here precedes the 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 being that's going to do the action of this verb. So, may hey he bless you So we know Shamor Vezachor Shin Mem um Lishmore, always about guarding, keeping. Um, And so we, we, how does God God guard you and keep you in English? It's often translated, keep you safe, protect you. Um, That's the sense of Shamor in one sense is, you know, you have guards and what do guards do? They keep you safe. Um, If you guard something, you are keeping it safe. So may God bless you and may God keep you safe. May God protect you. This is a verb about Light. So to light up, to ignite. May yud heh vav he light up, what? Panav, his face, towards you. Okay? So may God light God's face toward you. Vayasem Lecha Shalom. And put on you. Oh, sorry, sorry, I jumped. May God light up God's face towards you. This is the root. Chet nun. nun is chen, grace. So I have never found a good way to say this in English. Those of you who studied with me know this. Um, deal graciously with you. Okay, <laughs> right? It's so lame in English. Um, so I just usually say gracify. Right. So may God gracify you. Whatever that means may God regard you, may God treat you with chain, with grace. Yisa Adonai Panav Elecha. May God lift up God's face toward you lecha Shalom. And put upon you shalom. Peace. Alright. So we've seen the progression from three to five to seven words from uh from the Letters, there's lots as you can imagine that has been done with this bracha. Lots of ways people have analyzed this. There's lots of arguing over what this bracha means. Lots, Um, it seems pretty straightforward and we're very used to it. But there's a lot, if you really want to try to unpack it, there's a lot of arguments about what this actually means. Um, So, what does it mean that God lights up God's face towards you? What does it mean? to treat you with chain. Exactly. What does that mean? What does it mean for God to lift up God's face towards you? And what does it mean that we're asking God to grant you shalom that, that doesn't seem to flow with the rest of these, you know, the rest of the intent here is that you'll know peace, meaning not war, Right. There was not so much a concept of Shalom, you know, being, meaning that you're going to like find serenity. right? So, you know, so what what does that mean? That you'll be well. Right. When you're asking after someone's Shalom, you're asking after how are they essentially. So there's lots of conversation, lots of discussion, lots of ways to understand this. Um, I'm not going to pretend um, that I know the the most accurate translation. Um But it is interesting if you look here, um, if you study other citations, um, that's often how we get to um, a translation is looking at other places that we see these words. Um, And so looking here at the Jewish virtual library, um, we see in biblical idiom, the king shows favor, so chanan, this word chain to his subjects by giving them audience, access to the light of his face. Well, that would make some sense then, right? If someone is given by the king access to the light of the king's face, and that is chen, that is grace, then that part of the bracha makes sense. May God light up God's face towards you. Meaning, may you have access to the light of God's face, which by definition is God being gracious to you. Disfavor is expressed by hiding the face, right? So so that makes that sentence and that blessing makes a little more sense. The third verse of the benediction presents a problem. For the king never lifts up his face upon his subjects as a token of favor. To lift one's own face means to look up. And we see this in um, two kings, second kings. And it is rather the recipient of favor whose face is lifted up. So the, the verbs in Hebrew, nesu panim. So it's, it's the person who is shown favor whose face is lifted up, not the king, not the powerful entity. That face is never, that, that idiomatic expression is not used for the person in power lifting their face towards the other person. Um, In the blessing, however, the idea seems to be that of raising the features in a smile, the opposite of dropping them in a frown and referencing Jeremiah and Genesis and Job where God promises, I will not drop my face against you. So lifting up the face here, Um, is the opposite of dropping my face against you, which might mean lifting the features of the face, right? When we see someone we love, when we see someone we're pleased with, we lift the features, right? We lift the face. Finally, favor is a good deal more than the mere absence of hostility. Consequently, not just peace, but friendship is what shalom means here. Again, referencing... uh, other places we see this word judges, um, where briti shalom, God promises my covenant of shalom. And in sorry, that was numbers, um, and breach shlomi from Isaiah, my covenant of of friendship. If one further assumes, well, and, and I, I, don't, I don't assume that Vav has been omitted at the end of Shalom, um then it's God promising shlomo, God's own peace, God's own friendship. So this is how um, these folks translate it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord deal kindly and graciously with you. The Lord bestow his favor upon you and grant you his friendship. Okay. So that helps us understand it maybe possibly a little bit better. All right. I'm going to look in the chat and see what y'all are talking about. Tenderness, Barry is telling us in Arabic. Um, When I was a child, Susan says, may God cast his countenance upon you. Okay, casting. Wow, that's intense. Casting his countenance upon you. Okay. Um, Alex, you have a
3: question or a comment? Yes, Rabbi Amy, and and sorry for those of you who have been coming for a long time, but can you just... um, Take a brief moment to contextualize, sort of what we're looking at. I know you did in the beginning, but I'm still a little bit, uh, sort of what's a general. Cons- I know that there's all different interpretations of this, but what's a general consensus? And also, in can you frame this in a bigger picture for me?
1: The bigger picture, uh, for what the priestly benediction?
3: Yeah, of what's happening here. <laughs> what are we really looking at and and how does it connect to what we discussed in the beginning of the, of the session?
1: All right. So the, this does not relate to the beginning of the session. This is just stuff the priests do, right? So the, the, the Sotah ritual is something the priests do right there. She's brought to the priest. So this is, this is stuff about what the priests are busy doing. Um, and then God commands, uh, uh, Aaron and his sons to bless the people with these words. So God wants this particular blessing um, done by the priests for and to the people. Um, and this continued. This this continued in um, in First and Second Temple times. Um, it continues in conservative through Orthodox practice on holidays. Uh, it's called Duchenne because they were on a platform called a duchan. And so the priests uh, are called forward and they cover their head with talit. And um, you all know the position in which they would put their hands, right? Leonard Nimoy made it very famous. Um, They would put their hands in this position and bless the people. So this still happened. I I grew up with duchanan. I grew up in my grandparents' shul, um, having the priests... Duchen. Um, so the, so this now now many, many, many Jews bless their children with this in the home on Friday night that the priesthood is we, we take the place of the priests. The temple's gone. We have no priesthood. Um, and so we take the, that role and we bless um, our children, um, like I said, we bless as the rabbis. We use this bracha and bless the bar and bat mitzvah in front of the open ark um, with with this bracha, um, which is a very, very powerful moment for for me always. Um, and so it's still used as as blessing, but but originally it was only the priests. So that's the context. The priests are being told how to bless the people. Um, And that continues um, as long as there is a priesthood. Uh, Alex, how else do you want me to contextualize?
3: That was, that was terrific. And you were saying that the, the numbers, the number of words, the five, seven, that was intentional or that's been interpreted as being intentional.
1: So we can't know, of course, the mind of the folks who wrote this and, and, you know, made it their practice. But I, I, find it hard to believe it's accidental that the numbers are 357 the letters go you know in increments of 5 i just i don't know i just i can't imagine that it's
3: not thoughtful is it is it is it structural or you think it's symbolic or both like is it a haiku <laughs> you know both. something like okay. yes yeah. both right so that
1: there's some meaning why a hi- why does a haiku have that many sil- syllables Why? Like, well, I don't know, (laughs) but but somebody did, right? It was meaningful to somebody that a haiku has X amount of syllables. So that's so I have to believe it was meaningful that that the numbers are three, five, seven. Um, And there's lots that's been done analyzing. They put this bracha on a grid like you, you know, you just write out the words with the spaces and and it's on a grid and you can see the exact middle letters are Vav and Lamed 36. And then there's all this stuff about, well, of course, because it's a 36 that keep 36 righteous souls that keep the world functioning at any given time. Like there's so much that people have read into this. Um, it's quite fun. If you want to play that game someday, it's very fun. Um, but you know, but people are ready to push it pretty far in terms of what they read in as uh meaningful.
2: Amy did the did the mystics in Spad um uh work with this?
1: Oh, of course. Of course,
2: yes. I would
0: think this is a natural.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, they have a lot. They do gematria. If you add up the letters, it it equates to this. And that's the same gematria as another word. So that must be meaningful, of course. And so, yeah, they do lots. They, they have a good time with us. Absolutely.
2: Amy,
0: one of my favorite interpretations of the first part of this, may the Lord bless you and keep or protect you. Uh, and I don't, I, I forget who said it, but it wasn't me is may may you be blessed with material things in your life and protected from the problems that come from having material
1: things in your life. It's Sforno.
2: Is that Sforno?
1: It's Sforno. Yeah. The it's forno. medieval commentator um, teaches that every blessing comes with uh, an exact parallel challenge or danger. And the danger of f- material wealth and blessing is that we will... Um, we, so we should be blessed with material wealth that in the Bible, blessing always means uh, material wealth, because in the ancient world, it, you were lucky to survive, right? So if your crops did well, and you had that, you you would live. So like, it was actually about having enough to live. And if you have that blessing, and if you get enough of that material blessing, um, then the you should be protected also from the danger that comes with that. Right, the turning away from the divine, which is why we get all this language then of you know God's face. So that you should you should not lose access to your awareness of the divine presence. Some want to say um the first bracha is physical, it's about material wealth, like I just said. Um, the second one is about um is a spiritual blessing, about achievement, and that the third is really feeling, in fact, the presence, the essence um, of God. If you like that one, terrific. Right. So it's, um, but it is, uh, but it is Sforno who says that, you know, that we are a both and tradition and that, that each, each of these brachot contain both the blessing and, um, and a way to protect us from what happens when we take those blessings for essentially for granted. Um, all right. So the, the other thing that people really like to point to is this, right? So the, the way that the priests bless. So if you go to a Jewish cemetery, you'll see this on headstones, um, which means that the person buried there traces their lineage back to to being a Kohen, to being a priest. Um, and, uh, so not just everybody can just decide they want to put this on there unless you're like, you know, trying to fool somebody that you come from Kohanim. Um, Again, for those of us who are progressive Jews, I don't care who's a Kohen, I don't care who's a Levi, it doesn't matter. We don't have a priesthood. It died 2,000 years ago. Get over it. All right, Sarah, do you have something?
0: Yes. I want to comment on the three, five, seven lines. Please. they're very. That rhythm is very poetic, and it builds strength. And it has, it gives you something that is strengthening,
1: I think. Okay. The poet has spoken. Um, and so, like, we always want to take Sarah pretty seriously when she's going to analyze uh, liturgy and poetry for us. So thank you for that, Sarah, that it's a very powerful structure. She's saying that progression, three, five, seven, is, is a pretty powerful one. I, I have to believe it was for them right? Um, say it again, Sarah. It's not only powerful for them, but the rhythm of it is for us. I would, I would agree. I, I think that's true. I mean, cause I feel it, you know, when I yeah. recite this bracha, we also recite this bracha over a convert um, in our, in my study when we finish the batein um, for someone who's converting to Judaism. Um, we, we, we make this brahat then, as well, um so you know the moments that we do it are also really powerful, right, so Sarah, I think I think you're right, there's something the power of the moment, the power of the ritual, the power of the pattern, the power of the words hundred and and for me, the power of how old this is, the power of we've been blessing with these words for so long right um so so back to this, back to the the hands, there's a beautiful interpretation of this that I love, um, that quotes the song of songs and in the song of songs, which you know, is erotic love poetry, like super erotic, <laughs> like go back and read it. <laughs> it is super erotic. Um, and of course it makes it into the canon of our sacred texts because the rabbis who wanted it said, this is a metaphor. This is poetry. That's a metaphor for the relationship between God and Israel. Pfft. Not <laughs> so, but they interpret it that way. It makes it into the canon. Uh, and we have the Song of Songs. So there is this image in the Song of Songs of the lover being behind the lattice work. The lover being behind the the lattice that covers the window or the private courtyard, right? Cause you weren't allowed to have that kind of contact with your beloved, right? Unless you're married. Um, so the lattice work and the lover peering out from behind the lattice work, that is the image that the rabbis work with when they talk about the priests doing this, that the priests become the lattice work from behind which God is hungry for a glimpse of the beloved Israel in an erotic sense, right? That God is hungry, is lusting for a glimpse of God's people that God loves Mm. with such abundance. Um, And what's interesting is that the priests stand with their back to the, to the sacred and face the people. They have turned their back on God in order to become a conduit and the lattice work um, from behind which God is peering for just a hint of a glance at the object of God's overwhelming love and affection. Um, I love that image a lot. Um, that's often how I feel whenever I'm the recipient either of a blessing or of a teaching from a teacher, and I feel like the the divine is like peeking out through that person, Right trying to make contact. Um, when I read Sarah's poetry, when I listen to you know certain music, you know, that people create, it's like the divine through that person and their openness to wanting to bring that forward, the divine is peeking out through the lattice work that is their art, their work, their sharing, their wisdom, their talent, their, you know their love for us in teaching and, um, and healing. Like I think people in the healing arts, I think the same, you know, about that. So I, that is an image. I really love that the priests are arranging a tryst essentially between God and the people of Israel. I just love that. Um, and the, the, the rabbis also teach that it was very important how the priests did this, that they had to do it with a full heart. They had to do whatever work they had to do to get over petty jealousies or anger or impatience or disappointment with the people. The priests had to be in a state of love and respect for the people. Thank you, Judith Eubig, for that. Um, that that's that's the place they had to be in in order to um, give this bracha, um, and it's really and, and to get to get their ego out of the way, right? That they had to truly be a conduit um, or I don't know, bad things happen. (laughs) You know, like, so it was as much about their orientation to, to the practice and to the moment um, as it is about uh, anything uh, else. Um, What else do I want to share with you? This idea of blessing, like often I get, so I, I get the question often, like why, why, what does it mean to bless? Like, what does that actually mean? Like, because it's kind of weird. We bless God, which is a little chutzpah if you think about it. What, God's not already blessed? And we say that. Baruch et Adonai hamivorach. Ha- mivorach Like, it's weird. We're blessing God who is Mivorach, who is already blessed. So is this department of redundancy department? Like, what, what, What does that mean, (laughs) right? So it's a little chutzpahdic. This idea that we bless God—Who the heck are we to bless the divine? But it's so Jewish (laughs) that we that we this is our practice. We originated this this idea of blessing the Holy Blessed One. Sarah, you had your hand up because without us, they're alone. We are the ones that support. They're teaching so who's teaching the priests are like ah, ah, got it, okay, so um love that um but i want to I want to carry it into the question I just asked, which is how chutzbuddi is it to bless God? what I hear what i I thought you were answering that question which is without us, is God blessed right like without without If a tree falls in the woods. Right. 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 So if God is alone and is all there is in the universe, does God experience being blessed? Blessed to whom? That we we have the chutzpah to believe that we are necessary in God's experience of blessedness because who else is going to do it of course the angels is one possibility that the rabbis love but guess what the angels weren't enough for god says our tradition right and you remember when the the angels get all upset that israel's going to get torah they're like wait a minute you're giving it to those monkeys are you kidding me right now and god says do you steal do you kill do you slander? No. What the heck do you need Torah for then, <laughs> right? So it's this, this odd combination of we are we are below the angels because we need Torah, because we keep messing up, because that's just our nature. Um, and yet we got created because the angels weren't enough, right? God, God wasn't satisfied with Sva'ot, with the heavenly hosts, says our Midrashic tradition, that um you know, what's that, that Hasidic statement that um, God created human beings because God loves stories, right? That this is, you know, and, and, and I believe, you know, God, you know, if we're going to use that language that God wants beings that are trying to figure it out, not that who already have it figured out and are per- perfect, but rather to, to live on this planet and, and live with whatever wisdom we're able to in a blessed way, be exposed to and live into so that we can um, finally try to figure it out, that that's, that's what God longs for is um, a creature that can think and decide and choose to be good. Um,
0: Which is the story, which is the story of the garden of Eden.
1: Yes. So that's right. That's Kushner's. At At
0: the very, very beginning, God decided to let man and woman, uh, a man in the generic sense, earthling uh, have the ability to choose.
1: And that's, so that's Kushner's interpretation is that God could have, could have created a, God could have not put that tree there.
0: Or God could have not created human beings.
1: Okay. But let's say God creates human beings. God didn't have to put the tree there and didn't have to say, don't eat from it. (laughs) Right. So that was a setup Uh, that's what choice was for is you have to set something up for us to have a choice. So the setup is here's a tree. You can't eat from it. Why, why not just not put the tree there or not tell them they can't eat from it. And Kushner says, because God doesn't care about perfection, everything would have been perfect. Eden would have stayed perfect. We would have stayed in Eden. God was not interested in perfection. God was interested in goodness. And goodness can only happen if you have a choice to do not good, right? Or to do something else, to do something different. And that that's the point, that God was not interested in perfection. And like I said, that you could use the Midrash. That God already had the angels. Um, God doesn't want angels only. God wants human beings who have the capacity to choose. God know? needs us, is what you're saying. Uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs>
2: Or at least I've heard that interpretation.
1: Uh-oh. <laughs> okay, we wanted to talk about that, Judith. You talked to the group of us who are living alone a couple of weeks ago in a way that just changed my whole thinking about God. You said God is a verb, not a noun, and we should be interested in godding, not in worshiping God. And I'm wondering if the the response to this is that we don't need to bless God, but we're doing our part in godding by responding to that. In other words, we're blessing also. So when we bless, we are godding. We are godding. Right. And, I, and I think that, that remains a really powerful practice for us because I think on some level we get that. Like we really get it, that we're godding when we do that. You know, when you look at a child and bless them, that is godding, like for sure. Um, that was a very powerful concept of not a god but an act. Right. So you can look at David Cooper's "God is a Verb." Um, yes, that, and, and that you know that's a book on that on that theology um, that God is not a noun. God is not a being, um, which is of course is Reconstructionist. You know, we the Reconstructionist teaching is that God is not a being. Um, and there is there is no supernatural God. There is a transnatural God, right? God is within and beyond nature, but is not supernatural and does not act on the world and does not cause things to happen or not happen. Even Hillel, Rabbi Hillel, in his commentary about what it takes to be a Jew, stated a very simple thing, that you believe that there's some process greater Than your own ego, and that you should treat people the way you want to be treated. That's Godding. Yep. Agreed. So to Bert's question, does God need us? Right. This is so. (laughs) Does does God need to be blessed? Don't know, but can tell you that our tradition seems to be chutzpahdik enough to think that might be true. Right. That God needs our attention and involvement and relationship. Right. And so even if I treat it as a verb, um, right, that there is no Godding without us to do it. Right. Godding doesn't exist if we're not here to do it. Um, And and that that the universe was incomplete without human beings who could choose and to be. Yes, um, Susan, to be in partnership, to be in covenant, that this is that that's divinity unfolded into beings, if you will, who could respond that we're the first opportunity that we know of in the universe to respond to the universe. And that's what was missing until human beings is the ability to respond, is relationship. Barry?
2: Um, I think it points to this natural law or, or human society type law. And if you want thing, good things to come to you, if you want your children to behave well, if you want, you know, your friends to respect you, then uh, what you have to do is bless them, is, is be respectful to them, to say good things about them, to to shine a light, as as the blessing says, upon their good qualities, and and as a result, you'll get good things in return without demanding it. So, and whenever there is uh, whenever we ask for a blessing uh, from God, we bless God first to spark that chain of uh, of, of, of goodness.
1: So what I, what I what I really like about what you just said is that our blessing, our our children's or whoever's being blessed, that experience of being blessed, of being blessed, changes us makes us better, right? It like the experience of being faith. loved makes us better,
2: right? It, it gives one faith that they could do better. One could do better. Then it shines a light upon one's goodness. Right. So that that teaching only... about catch your
1: kids being good.
2: Yeah. Catch your kids being good. Catch, catch your, your kids being, being
1: good. good and and, being and good. call it out all the time. Right. I'm so proud of you. Like um, I'm, you know, yeah. Wonderful. God doesn't need our Godding, says Mehmet, but the world does in order to make it a better place for both nature and people. Amen, 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 beautifully said. Alex?
3: Could it be interpreted not so much as a blessing to others, but a covenant and a partnership to oneself with the assumption that, that we all have a piece of the divine within us, then this ritual of and that reminder of that covenant and partnership so, to not not only be blessing god but ultimately ourselves it's a part i mean could it be interpreted as a partnership within ourselves lovely so that um you know really in blessing we're
1: accessing the divine within and channeling that outward Right? Isn't that what we do when we really experience blessing? Right? We're accessing the, the own, our own spark of the divine and right casting it, if you, to use Susan's language from the 50s, um, right? Um, We're casting it outward, um, which is, it's a beautiful, beautiful thought. David, if there were no God, wouldn't we need to invent God to help us move beyond ourselves to a better being? So um, actually, since I'm a holy roller and a true believer, um, I would say we we don't need to create God because there there already is that in the universe that I would reference as God. Now, do are you saying, do we need that? And it would be really hard for us to live without that? Some people say no. Some people say yes. I'm one of the people who says. Yes, it would be really hard to live without some kind of concept of something bigger, you know, um, or even doing bigger if we want to go with a verb. Um, But lots of people take great pride in not pretending that there is a God and they choose to live a life, you know, rejecting in any sense the language that, that suggests something bigger that is not scientific, Right. And and I call that a belief, by the way. I think there's a lot of scientism in our in our world and in our culture um, that that's just as firm a belief as believing that there's something bigger <laughs> Right, to believe there can't possibly be anything. And it's all made up and it's all the, to comfort the masses. It's all morphine for the masses. You know, great. But that's a belief. <laughs> Why is that belief different from mine? you know, which says, um, you know, that there, that there is a connection to something larger because I've experienced it. It's not about belief, right? For me, it's about experience and having experienced access to that, having experienced it coming through right when I'm serving, then I, I know that that's there because I've, I've been in it. (laughs) So anyway, um, Mark says the poet Auden suggests that it is the ability to bless, I just lost it, that is relevant. It reveals a desolation of the spirit to be unable to bless. To be able to bless God is to evince being blessed. Wow. Okay. Someday over lunch, you're going to have to unpack that for me, Mark Fish. Um, All right, Sarah? I think... That the experience
0: of becoming a parent when you give birth or you become a father, that that is a moment of accessing the divine in yourself because you change. You have other concerns. You become more like God in some ways.
1: Lovely, Sarah. Lovely. I mean, I think this is true of teachers and students. I think it's true of people who have four-legged children. I think, right. It's true of those of us who have anyone placed in our care, right. To, to an extraordinary degree, the, the sense of that responsibility, um, loving responsibility, usually <laughs> um, that comes with that is very much godlike, like hundred percent that we, and that, and that, you know, as we, As we grow, we hopefully are able to access feeling that same sense of care, right? Being cared for by in the universe, right? Um, That 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 it yes. So we become like God in in feeling that for another creature, but I think also um, that we we learn to to experience you know feeling that from the parent God that I don't believe in, um, that, you know, that, that, that we are loved by the universe that we are held and loved uh, the way a parent was is supposed to love us. Not all of our parents did the way we were supposed to be loved, but, um, but you know, in, in the healthy ways that we are loved and cared for by not just our parents, but by other, our other loving, um, folks. Yes. That that's, you know, we, we look, hopefully we learn to feel that too, um, in, in the universe. Um, Barry says he'd be interested in listening to people who choose not to become parents. Right. About this. Well, that would be an interesting conversation. Um, All right. So we're going to need to start winding this down. Um, Lee says when she held her grandson hours after his birth, there was a palpable change in her soul and there was no blood relationship. Right. Those of us who are adopted feel the same thing. Um, We have no blood, you know, no, no one gave birth to us. we kind of fell out of an attorney's file cabinet Um, so, but right, but hopefully that parental, you know, but that parental relationship exists. Nonetheless, there's lots of ways to, to become parents, lots of ways to receive and give, um, that kind of tender, protective love. And we see what happens to people who didn't get it right. That, that's the flip side is, you know, we really see all of you professionals here, you know, you know what I'm talking about, you know, what people who are so fundamentally, Damaged, right? Because of not having been given and not having received that kind of of care and attention and um, and love. Well, so next time um, you go to uh, to services, the next time you're going to say the bracha over wine, the next time you're going to say the bracha over lighting candles or over challah, give it a little, give it a second. You're blessing God. You're blessing. The force in this universe that has resulted in Shabbat, that has resulted in our ability to apprehend that it's Shabbat, that has resulted in fire, that has resulted in grapes and humans figuring out how to make that into something really amazing, All right, So um, take a little extra time, a little added kavanah next time you say uh next time um, you, you make a bracha. Um, and I also really truly believe in blessing practice um, holding people in our care and offering them blessing. Um, I think it changes us. And I do believe in some kind of way that I cannot possibly explain because my brain's just not that big, um, is that we shift something in this world when we, when we bless people, um, even if they're not physically in our presence, that we can hold people in our, in our intention, um, and send them blessing.